there is a tension in our faith. There are elements that seem opposed to each other. But at a closer look, we see the tension doesn't pull them apart. It holds them together. These sides are not in debate, but dialogue. Faith expands as we embrace the tension. Explore the paradox. God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9 this morning as we begin a new series in the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's what we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks. In 2011, there was this movie that came out starring Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. It was entitled The Adjustment Bureau. And Matt Damon played this Brooklyn congressman named David who was running for the United States Senate, but he barely got beat. And as he was preparing to make his concession speech, he met Elise, who was this aspiring ballerina. It was love at first sight. They fell in love. He got a kiss. He knew that he wanted to be with her, but he was ushered in to give his speech. She was ushered out of the room. He never got her phone number, and so he thought they would never meet again. Several weeks later, David is getting ready to start his new job. And on the other side of town, there's this man who was approached by his supervisor. And he is told that before 7.05 a.m., he is to spill coffee on David so that David will miss his bus. Well, the guy that was supposed to do that overslept. And he didn't spill coffee on David. And David got on the bus, and guess who was on the bus? Elise was on the bus. This time he got her phone number, and they were ready to meet because they were in love. But when David got off his bus and went to his new place of work at his new office, he discovered that everybody was frozen. And there was these strange men looking around, observing everything. And when they saw him, they took out after him, caught him. And when they caught him, they told him something. They told him that they were agents of the Adjustment Bureau. And the Adjustment Bureau was to make sure that the plan of the chairman was carried out. And the chairman's plan was not for him and Elise to get together. And so they took the paper that Elise's phone number was on, tore it up, and said, you can never meet Elise again. And so when they left, David had to make a decision. Am I going to follow this predetermined path that the chairman has set for me, or am I going to follow my heart and try to find Elise? And so for the rest of the movie, he's trying to reconnect with Elise. At one point, he is caught by the Adjustment Bureau, and they take him to a warehouse, and they sit him in a chair, and and as they're talking to him, David says, what about free will? 
And the guy who was there interrogating him said, there is no free will. There's only the appearance of free will. Now, the Adjustment Bureau is just a movie. That's all it is. But that movie raises questions that you and I need to answer. For instance, do we control our destiny or does God control our destiny? Do we have a free will or has our fate already been predetermined? Does God choose salvation for some while rejecting others? Or what about this? If God does choose some and reject others, does that mean that God could choose me for salvation, but he could have rejected my children for salvation? Does that mean that, that if God has chosen me and he hasn't chosen my children, that he's chosen me to experience eternal life, but they've been chosen to experience eternal damnation? Or, or I can say it this way, has, has God chosen me as an object to show his mercy on and has he chosen my children as objects to display his wrath on and that leads to another question if our eternal destinies have already been predetermined then why do we need to share the gospel I know we're commanded to but I mean come on if if people's fates are already predetermined then it really doesn't matter whether I share or not because God already knows I won't share and somebody else is going to share. and So I don't really need to share. Well, those are tough questions, aren't they? And those are the kind of questions that are asked and answered in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And let me say to you, that's why many Bible teachers and preachers skip over these passages. I'll bet many of you here this morning have never heard a message on Romans chapter 9. And there's a reason for that. Romans chapter 9 is one of the most debated and one of the most difficult passages in the entire Word of God. And so people avoid it like the plague. They don't want to try to tackle this. And I mean, the, this passage, Romans 9... It's divided many people in the church at least since the 4th century. Now, before we go any further into this series, let me just say to you that you need to understand that many good and godly people disagree on how to interpret these passages. And there are people that love Jesus. There are people that believe the Bible on both sides of these issues that's why I believe regardless of where we fall on the theological spectrum when it comes to these deep truths we need to remain humble and we need to remain gracious toward those people who disagree with us I mean the truth of the matter is none of us will never completely understand the things of God this side of eternity you do understand that right I mean, Paul even wraps up this section in Romans 11 by stating that. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, I want you to listen to what Paul said. He says, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And then he says this, how impossible it is 
for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Did you get that? I mean, it's literally impossible for you and I to understand the decisions that God makes and the way that God does things. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? And then he says this, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Now in those two verses, Paul says two things. First of all, he says it's impossible for you and I to understand all the things about God. The way he works, the way he moves in human history. You and I just will never be able to understand it completely. So live with it. You don't need to develop a series of systems to try to explain the unexplainable. The Bible says that the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us. What I've come to understand is there's enough things that are easily understood to keep me busy, to keep me from trying to tackle these things that I never will completely understand. The second thing you need to understand that he says here is life isn't about you. Life isn't about me. It's about God. Paul says it's about his glory. He created us and he created everything in creation for his glory, not ours. And here's what I know. If you can embrace that truth, that it's not about you, it's about his glory, then everything else really will take care of itself. Now, throughout Scripture, we see two truths that seem to always be in tension throughout Scripture. The, the first one is this, God must choose us. The Bible clearly teaches that. The second one is, we must choose God. The Bible clearly teaches that. In, in this chapter, chapter 9, we are clearly seeing that God must choose us to be a part of his family. Verse 12 says, God calls people, not according to their good or bad works. Verse 16, it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Verse 24, we are among those he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. But we also see in this chapter that we must choose to be a part of God's family. Verse 30 says, says it is by faith that this takes place verse 32 says they were trying to get right the Jews were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting him and verse 33 says anyone anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced as we move on to Romans chapter 10 Paul says all who believe in him are made right and he goes on to say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, we see those two truths consistently throughout Scripture. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, you did not choose me. I chose you. But then it says in John chapter 1 that those who receive him, those who choose him, he gives the right to become the sons and daughters of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, we are told that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. And yet in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told God wants everyone to be saved. Everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. Throughout scripture, we, we read words like election and predestined and chosen. 
but we also read words and phrases like whosoever will and anyone and everyone. And so as we begin to dive into Romans chapter 9 and we discover five what I believe are clear truths, I want to encourage you to do something. As you read God's word, don't get caught up in the rough. Don't get caught up in the weeds. Because if you get caught up in the weeds, you're going to miss the fairway, the clear truths that God is presenting and he's trying to teach us. And so as you're reading scripture, what you want to do is always look for the clear truths that God is trying to teach us. And in Romans chapter 9, there are five very clear truths that I believe are, are life-changing. They are freeing when you really begin to understand them. Here's truth number one. Everyone who is a part of God's family should be burdened for those who are not a part of God's family. Everyone who is a part of God's family should be burdened for those who aren't a part of God's family. Listen to what it says in verses 1 through 5. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as human nature is concerned, and, and he is God and the one who rules over everything and, and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Now, as Paul begins Romans chapter 9, he's brokenhearted. And he's brokenhearted because his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus. Now, you need to remember the Jews are God's chosen people. God has chosen them to display his glory. God has chosen them to make covenants with them. He's entrusted his law to them. He has given them the promises that were revealed through the prophets about the Messiah. And yet, in spite of all of that, they reject him. In spite of all of these incredible opportunities to hear and receive the Messiah, they reject him. And this broke Paul's heart. He was filled with grief. He was filled with sorrow because of the lostness of the people he loved. It even says, I would be willing to be cursed to go to hell if my going to hell would, would save those who are far from God. Now, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you were burdened for those who are not yet a part of God's family? Really? I mean, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christ follower, when was the last time you were truly burdened, broken, grief-stricken for those who are not a part of God's family? David the psalmist said this. He said, those who sow in tears will reap with joy. Perhaps one of the reasons that we don't see a harvest personally, and perhaps one of the reasons that we don't see a harvest nationally today for the lost is because we don't truly have a burden for those who are far from God. Here's what I believe. 
our spiritual breakthroughs are tied to our brokenness. Write that down. Our spiritual breakthroughs are tied to our brokenness. A great harvest will never be seen in our lives or in the lives of our nation or the life of our world until the tears of God's people water the fields. Are you hearing me? So when is the last time you as a child of God got on your knees before God, got on your face before God, broken because someone was going to go to hell because they had not yet received Christ. We need to pray that God will give us a heart like Paul for those who are far from God. First truth, everybody who is a part of God's family should be burdened for those who are not yet a part of God's family. Second truth, not everyone who says they are a member of God's family really are a member of God's family. Listen to what it says in verses 6 through 9. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, not at all. For not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Through Abraham, though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Don't miss that. That means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God has promised, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a, a son. Now, some would say, since the Jews had rejected Jesus, then God had failed to keep his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, his promise that, that through Israel, God would make a nation that would bless the world. But you need to understand that God's word can always be trusted. We may not understand it completely, but God's word is always true. And God's word can always be trusted. So Paul answers them by saying that just because someone is a Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham, does not make them an actual Jew, a part of God's family. And then he gives an example. He says Abraham had, had other children other than Isaac. The one we really know about is Ishmael, don't we? Remember, God had gave that promise to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And Abraham held on to that promise, was looking forward to that promise. But Abraham was getting old. Sarah was getting old. It hadn't happened. And so Sarah decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. And she brought Abraham in one day and said, Abraham, I'm not getting any younger. You're not getting any younger. We haven't had any kids yet. Let's help God out a little bit. I've got my servant, Hagar. And why don't you take her and... And you can have sex with her, and she can have a son, and he will be the son of promise. Abraham says, sounds good to me. And so that's what Abraham did. And Ishmael was born. But Ishmael was a son of the flesh. Ishmael was not a son of the promise. God did not intend for the blessing to come through the work of man. God intended for the blessing to come through a miracle of God. And so God said, Ishmael is not the line. Even though he's your physical descendant, he's not the line that is going to be provided the promise. Later on, after Sarah died, get this, Abraham had other kids. 
Those kids weren't kids of the promise. The promise came only through Isaac. Now, when Jesus came onto the scene, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees one day, and these Pharisees were Abraham's seed. They were children of the promise. They were of the lineage of Isaac, of Jacob, and all the rest. But Abraham, or Jesus, looked at the Pharisees and said, Abraham's not your father. Your father is the devil. Did you hear that? You see, not everyone who is born a physical descendant of Abraham is a child of promise. Now, what does that have to do with us today? You see, we have this idea in America that if we're born in America, we must be Christians for the most part. We know there are some that aren't. But if we're born in America, you know, this is a Christian nation, so we're Christians. Or we say, well, my parents are Christians. Since my parents are Christians, I'm a Christian. Or we say, well, I go to a Christian church, so I'm a Christian. And we say all kind of things like that. We have this idea that because I'm born to a certain family or I live a certain way, I must be a follower of Jesus. But not everyone who claims to be a part of God's family really is a part of God's family. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. The truth of the matter is, there are many people today who believe that they're a part of God's family. They think they're going to go to heaven when they die, but the reality is, they are not a part of God's family. They have never been born again. And so, this passage is teaching that not everyone who says they're a part of God's family really are. It's only those who have received the promise from God. Here's the third truth. And this is where it starts to get a little deep. We start to get into the deep grass here. Here's the third truth. God sovereignly uses people to accomplish his purpose for growing his family. God sovereignly uses people to accomplish his purpose to grow his family. Let's pick up with verse 10. This son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. Now that's important. God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. He calls them according to his purposes. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Many translations say, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now, the first thing you need to understand before we deal with that passage you want me to deal with is we need to address this issue of God's sovereignty. You see, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. God is God, and God has no equal. God has no rival. Uh, some people have this idea that there's this battle raging and there's God and God's real strong and there's Satan and he's pretty strong and you know God's having to do everything he can to keep Satan in check and there's this battle and and even though God's going to ultimately win out in the end there's this terrible battle raging and God's having to give his all it's not how it is God is God he has no equal. He has no rival. If God wanted to, he could speak Satan out of existence right 
now. Did you hear me? This very moment, God could say, Satan, you're gone. Satan would be gone. There's no battle raging. God is on his throne. There is nothing he can't do. There is nothing he doesn't know. And so, listen, this is important. That means anything that happens, he either has allowed to happen or he causes to happen. Did you get that? It's heavy. But if you believe God's sovereign, if you believe God has no rival, if you believe God is in control, then what that means is anything that happens, God could have stopped. And so God has either allowed it to happen or he has caused it to happen. And God is allowing these things and causing these things because they are all moving toward his ultimate plan, his ultimate purpose. And you need to understand that nothing can thwart God's plan, God's purpose, because God's sovereign. He's in control. Now, verse 13. There are two things you need to understand about verse 13. Esau I love, Jacob I rejected. The first thing is this. It's not saying that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. I want you to go back to some words Jesus said in Luke 14. Jesus is talking to the crowd and he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must hate his mother and father, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, and yes, even his own life. If he doesn't, he can't be my disciple. Jesus said that. You want to follow Jesus? You got to hate your mom and dad. Got to hate your wife. Got to hate your children. Got to hate your brothers and sisters. You got to hate your own life. Or you can't be Jesus' disciple. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, because Jesus told us what? We're to love the world, right? We're to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. So, so we're to love people. So what is Jesus saying? Hey, well, what he's saying is, is it's a comparison. Jesus is saying that, that when we, we look at our love for God, and we compare it to our love for other people and other things. Our love for other things and other people pales in comparison to our love for God to the point that it almost looks like a love-hate relationship. You see what God is saying here in this passage with Jacob and Esau is this. God is saying, I am going to bless Jacob so much so much I am going to use him in such a way that by comparison it looks like I don't care anything for Esau it looks like I I hate him so that's the first thing you need to understand uh, this is saying that God has chosen to use Jacob in such a way that by comparison it looks like Esau is hated second thing you need to understand this is not talking about individuals here it's talking about nations you say how do you know that I can tell you how I know it because when God spoke to Rebecca in Genesis 22 when Becca was having these pains as she was pregnant God said you have two sons inside of you 
two nations inside of you. And the older is going to serve the younger. So God told Rebecca, inside of you are two nations. Not one nation, but two different nations. And the older is going to serve the younger. But this passage right here, verse 13, is actually a quote from Malachi 1. And when you read Malachi 1, it becomes very clear that God is speaking of Israel and Edom. And he is saying there that the way that I have blessed Israel and the plans that I have for Israel are so great that by comparison, all the other nations of the world, it's like I hate them. And what was God's plan for Israel? We don't have to guess. We know. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham said, I'm going to call you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great so that the world will be blessed through you. God's plan in blessing Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel was always so God could bless the world with the Savior, with Jesus, with the Messiah. And I don't know about you, I'm not a Jew, but I am thankful that God chose to bring the Messiah through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David to you and I so that we can be saved. You see, God sovereignly uses people to accomplish his purposes. Why does he use some and not use others? Well, that's one of those secret things that belong to God. Why does he call some and not call others? Well, that's one of those things that we're not going to know this side of eternity, but we're trusting God and we're trusting his plan. And here's the fourth truth. God's character never changes. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 16. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can either choose it or work for it. And, and that, that is simply saying, notice, it's saying God shows mercy to whoever he wants. And God shows compassion to whoever he wants. We don't work for it. It's all a matter of God's mercy. That's all that is saying there. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for this very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others. So they refuse to listen. Well then, you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this when a potter makes jars out of clay? Doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he's very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who were made for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. 
And we are among those whom he selected, both Jew or both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And there's two stories here. First of all, there's the story of Pharaoh. And the story of Pharaoh confuses some of us because it talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And, and, and he, Paul says, can't God harden the heart so that people will not listen if he wants to? And we sit back and say, why would God ever harden a person's heart? And the Bible says that God hardened his heart. In the book of Exodus, 20 times we are told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But what you need to understand is, the first 10 times, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. The next 10 times, it says that God hardened his heart. You see, before God ever hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart multiple times. You need to understand this passage is not saying that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not believe. No, God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was in response to what Pharaoh had already done. You see, the sun softens wax but it also hardens clay. What's the difference? The substance. The sun doesn't change. The sun is the same. But the same sun that hardens clay softens wax. Why? Because of the substance. Some hearts are hard. Some hearts are receptive. That's what this is saying. You see, God hardened Pharaoh's already hardened heart so that his glory would be displayed to both the Jews and the Egyptians and they would know that he's God. You say, Rocky, I don't believe that. I don't care. <laughs> no, really, I don't care because it's in the Bible. Now, let, me, let me read it to you. Exodus 14, verse 4, And once again I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Later on, verses 17 and 18, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know I am the Lord. And then Exodus 14, verse 31, when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him, and they put their faith in the Lord. What is this saying? It's saying that God took a heart that was already hardened it, he continued to harden it so that he could display his glory and his power so that more people could get saved. God didn't harden a heart that was ready to be receptive to God. God hardened a heart that had already been hardened to the point that it was not going to respond. Now let's talk about this other illustration Paul uses, the, the illustration of the potter. And he's taking this from the Old Testament. And can I give you a, a, little, uh, a little help in interpreting Scripture? First of all, and many people do this. Uh, you see it on Facebook all the time. People quote a verse. My God will supply all my needs according to his glorious riches. Amen. God's going to give me a car. 
not what the passages say. So when you're taking a verse, you've got to interpret that verse in its context. What's before it and what's after it. If you pull a verse out of its context, rather than properly interpret it, more often than not, you're going to misinterpret it. Second thing. Whenever a passage in the New Testament is a quote or an illustration from an Old Testament passage, you need to go to that Old Testament passage to see what it was saying. Because you're never going to understand what the person was saying about that story unless you go back and see the story. And the story of the potter, the most detailed story. There's a couple of verses scattered throughout where it talks about a potter, it talks about clay, but the most detailed story in the Old Testament about the potter and the clay is found in Jeremiah 18. And in Jeremiah 18, God is telling his people that he is going to destroy them. They've rebelled, the Jews, the Israelites, I'm going to destroy you. You've rebelled against me, you've Worship false gods for the last time. I am tired of it, and I am going to destroy you. And because of that, some of the Jews became fatalistic. They said, well, God's going to destroy us. There's nothing we can do. And God responds to that by saying, you don't understand at all, do you? Boy, you are, you're not very bright. And so God speaks to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. And I'm going to help people understand what I am saying to them. And in Jeremiah 18, we have Jeremiah going to the potter's house. And this is what it says. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop. I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me and found the potter's working, the potter working at his wheel. But the jar he was making did not turn out how he hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over now the point of those verses is not to show the power of the potter to determine what the clay becomes but rather is to show how the potter wisely and flexibly is working with the clay responding to the clay when the clay doesn't turn out the way he wants it to turn out what does he do he puts it back into a ball and he begins to work with it again. Is that not what this is saying right here? Now the word for, for um, did not turn out the way he wanted it to in the Hebrew means corrupt or spoiled. And so what it's saying is as the potter was working with this clay, the clay became corrupt. The clay became spoiled. The clay was no longer any good so what did the potter do the potter put it back in a ball and he started all over again now I've talked to some sculptors I'm not a sculptor but I've talked to some sculptors and what sculptors have told me is that sculpting is not so much about the sculpt um, the sculptor um, imposing his idea on the clay it's finding out what that clay is like <laughs> And then using the clay the way it's supposed to be used. In a sense, 
what that means is that clay has a mind of its own. You see, here is this potter fashioning one kind of vessel, and, and the clay isn't cooperating. It becomes corrupted. It becomes spoiled. So what does he do? He flexibly takes the clay and starts all over with it. So the potter is wise and flexible and responsive, and he fashions the, the, the clay into a different object now. You see, this isn't about the, the potter saying, I'm going to do with you whatever I want to do. It's about the potter working in the life of the clay, making the clay into the object it needs to be. And then he goes on to say this. He said, oh, Israel, can I not do this to you as the potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I planned. Did you get that? God says to Jeremiah, the point I'm making here is, is if a nation, I'm doing something in a nation, and that nation doesn't respond the way I want it to respond, do I not have the right to start all over with that nation again? God is saying, if you will turn to me, I will turn to you. Why? Because I'm the potter, you're the clay, and I can do what I want to do. You see, just because I've said it's going to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. The reason I said it's going to happen is so that it won't happen. Is that confusing you? But listen to what he said. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, turned down, torn down, destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it. God says, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to do something. But if you repent, if you turn, if you respond to me the way you're supposed to respond to me, I won't do it. God changes his mind. You say, no, God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't. Do you remember the story of Jonah and Nineveh? God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what did God tell Jonah to preach in Nineveh? Get ready. 40 days, I'm going to destroy you. 40 days, I'm going to destroy you. Jonah went reluctantly and gave the message and what did the people of Nineveh do? They repented. They turned from their evil ways. So did God destroy them because that's what he decreed to do? No. He relented. He changed his mind. Because they turned from what they were doing, he turned from what he was going to do. And then notice what God says. This is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. You see, the potter has the right to do what he wants to do. But the potter's desire isn't to build an object of wrath. The potter's desire is always to build an object to display his mercy and his grace. But the clay has to be moldable. The clay has to be pliable. Or the potter will use the clay in other ways. By the way, verse 22, if your Bible is open, it says that some objects are made for wrath. They are objects of destruction. You say, that says that 
God makes some to display his mercy on and God makes some others to display his wrath on. That's not what it's saying. In the Greek, you have three voices. The Greek language, you have three voices. This is not saying that God made them objects of destruction. It is saying they made themselves objects of destruction. Because of their choices, they became objects of destruction. Now, there are three very clear truths in this passage about God's character. First of all, God is fair. Can anyone say that God is unjust? No, God is fair. No one is going to be able to stand before God and say, God, you're not fair. God, I didn't have a chance. God, I didn't have a choice. God, I didn't get the opportunity to receive you. Nobody is going to stand before God and say that. The second thing, God is merciful. Oswald Sanders said, what will amaze us as we look backwards from eternity is not the severity of God's justice, but the greatness of God's mercy. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And third, God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really being slow about His promise as some people think. No, He has been patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So God's character is unchanging. Throughout history, he is just and fair. He is merciful. He's patient. That leads me to the final truth we see in this passage, and that is the only way that you and I can become a part of God's family is through faith in Jesus. Listen to what it says in verses 30 through 33. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God, and it was by faith faith that this took place but the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded why not because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him they stumbled over the great rock in their path God warned them of this in scripture when he said I am placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble or rock that makes them fall but Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. You see, if Paul wraps up this section, he is saying that we aren't saved because of our birth, our family tree. We're not saved by our behavior, what we do or don't do. We are saved by faith. Each and every one of us are saved by faith. It's always been by faith. The Gentiles chose to believe the Jews chose to stand on their own goodness and because of that their lack of faith they were lost for all eternity the Bible tells us that this didn't make God happy this broke God's heart in chapter 10 it says this all day this is God all day I opened my arms to them but they were disobedient and rebellious all day all day I opened my arms to them come to me let me love you 
let me forgive you, trust me. All day his arms are open. And yet they were stubborn and disobedient and rebellion. God rebellious. God is longing for them to come to him. And yet they refuse. And that's what God is doing to you. God's arms are open wide. Here's what I know. There's no one in this room today that was chosen by God for hell. I want you to look at me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've gossiped against. It doesn't matter who you've cheated on. God didn't choose you for hell. God wants to save you. And he sent his son, Jesus, to die in your place. But you're not going to make it to heaven by being good enough. Because none of us are. The only way you're going to get to heaven is by trusting Jesus by faith. And if you're here today and you will turn to him and turn from your sin and trust him and place your faith in him, I'm here to tell you he will save you and he will change you and he'll make you brand new no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how far you've fallen. Because that's what he says. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Now, some of you may be saying, but Rocky, I just don't know if God's chosen me. Look at me. If you're asking a question like that, I'm here to tell you that answers the question. God's chosen you. Because you would never be asking questions like that if God hadn't chosen you. God wants to save you. God wants to redeem you. God wants to make you new, so much so that he paid the ultimate price by giving his son. But it's up to you. You've got to trust him. He's not going to force himself on you. Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. With your head bowed with your eyes closed. If you're here and you say, Rocky, I've never done that. I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never trusted him to be my Savior. But today I'm ready to do that then I want to encourage you right here, right now to pray this prayer to God with a humble, sincere heart. Dear God, I humbly come before you today asking you to forgive me for all my sin. I've disobeyed you. Live my way instead of your way. I'm so sorry. I don't want to live that way anymore. Jesus, I believe you came to this earth you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. And today I'm trusting you to save me. I'm giving my life to you. From this moment on, I want to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer and saving me. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.